Off Script with Trish Close, intimate interviews with interesting people. And in front of my microphone today is Mr. Dave Sidden of Wildlife Images. Hello, sir. Good morning. Hi. You're, what's your title with Wildlife Images? Head honcho. Uh, no, executive director. It sounds real important. That, that is head honcho. <laughs> okay. You're the, you're the jefe is what I like to say. Um, so you have been with Wildlife Images for a very long time. Uh, 21 years, I think, ago I took over. 1996. Okay. okay. That's a long time in yeah. my book. Um, we're going to talk a lot about wildlife images and animals and all that good stuff. But first, tell me, sir, where you're from originally. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley of Southern California. Okay. And uh, my dad was a documentary filmmaker and writer. And so he was traveling all over the world at the time. So I was involved in that just because I was cheap help. When he needed somebody that could work on cameras or do uh, some of the things in the field, he would drag me along, mm -hmm. uh, typically. So from about... Well, age of 12 or 13, I got to go on expeditions and things with him. Yeah, and your dad's name is also Dave. Yeah, his group, excuse me, his proper name was John David Sidden. Okay. And uh, I was just, you know, named David, David Sidden, but everybody calls me Junior for some reason. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, my dad's father was John, so okay. the confusion between him and his dad was always going on, so he went by his middle name, and then he recreated the same nightmare with me. <laughs> okay, and so how did your dad get involved in documentary filmmaking? Do you know? Um, he was a photographer for a newspaper that started off, mm -hmm. and um, I think on one or two of the stories, he ended up running into the news people or whatever that were working with cameras and films, just took up an interest with it and uh, bought his own camera gear, and mm -hmm. started working on documentaries. And he was always very environmentally oriented mm -hmm. his entire life. Mm -hmm. uh, the environment and what went on with the wildlife and the health of the environment was really critical with him. Right. So his documentary films led him into, uh, one of the biggest films that he worked on was a documentary about the brown pelicans off the coast of California and their decline. In the late 60s and early 70s, the population of brown pelicans was just plummeting mm -hmm. and nobody knew exactly what was going on. So he got involved with the uh, National Academy of Sciences and the people at Bodega Marine Laboratory and other uh, scientists and decided to document what was going on and uh, started the film. And one of our family friends was Eddie Albert, who was the star of Green Acres. Mm -hmm. And um, so he became the spokesperson in this film. And my father produced this film. They found out that it was DDT contamination that was causing the end of the California mm -hmm. condors and was affecting, of course, the pelicans as well. And um, so we went to the Anacap Island and the Channel Islands and recorded and documented what was going on. And uh, the film came out, and it was one of the things that caused the banning of yeah. DDT. So it was, he really changed the world in what he was doing. Really changed the world. Really did. That's, and I like to think of journalism as a little bit like that, too. Documentary filmmaking kind of plays a role in that. A lot of people get into this because they want to make change. They, they want to do something that's better, that creates a better change in the, you know, in the end result. And your dad did that. He did. He really did. He lived his values, and I really appreciate that. I think that's such an honorable thing to do, and I've kind of led my life trying to do the same sort of thing. Right, and we are going to talk about your dad because I've I've heard some stories from you, and he's quite fascinating. Was your childhood a lot like that, um, just hanging out with dad and, and going on different things? Or I mean, tell me about your childhood. Um, yeah, my childhood was a, a lot of it. I always looked up to my father and my grandfather. They're both wonderful people. 
Um, Dad was a real autocrat, so at times it was very difficult to work with him. Um, you know, he wouldn't, he could do a lot of things. He was incredibly creative, but he couldn't teach you how to do it. He just mm. expected it of you. Oh, so it that's was challenging. It was. It was just, uh, you know, osmosis or whatever. You're supposed <laughs> to just know inherently how to work all the cameras or do all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And he had very little patience with people and trying to teach people something. So I grew up with that sort of... Um, overwhelming presence that he had at times. Right. Uh, very hot-tempered and oh, easy, really? easy, easy to set him off. But you'd never guess that around his animals. When he had an animal or he's working with an animal, he was completely the most patient and wonderful, easygoing guy in the world. Were you sometimes like, hey, why don't I get that same? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. But, you know, I guess it made me uh, rely on myself a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it led into a good direction for me. It just made it a good thing. Right. And so uh, where'd you go to high school? Uh, San Fernando Valley Monroe High School. Oh, you were a total Southern California Oh, I boy. was. Yes. Uh, the original Valley boy. Were you a surfer? <laughs> no, I never got involved in surfing. I, it turned out that, um, you know, I was when I wasn't goofing around with the animals or helping my dad out or whatever, I wasn't a particularly good student or very <laughs> engaged in high school. It really didn't do much for me. Um, so I wasn't really sure. I was sort of floundering. What am I going to do with my life? Yeah. What's it going to be? And um, it turned out by happenstance, one of the other elements in this Pelican film was SeaWorld in San Diego. Okay. And a good friend of our family's was the curator of birds at the LA Zoo. He left that position and took a job at SeaWorld to build a zoological collection of waterfowl at SeaWorld. And he built the largest waterfowl collection on earth. And um, I had been with him on several expeditions. So I got mm -hmm. to know this guy named Frank Todd. And at one point he decided, hey, you're getting out of school. Why don't I just hire you to come down here and work for me at SeaWorld? So I kind of ran away to the circus after school. Right. <laughs> I went after high work. school. After high school, I went to work at SeaWorld. And um, it was a fascinating time because SeaWorld was very um, new. It was only 10 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was growing horrendously, mm -hmm. and all kinds of new things were coming in. You know, nobody really knew what could be done with the dolphins and killer whales. Mm -hmm. And then we were building this waterfowl collection. So I would go to the airport two or three times a day, picking up shipments of birds that I'd never seen before. Wow. And you had to figure out, okay, what kind of food, what kind of water? Do they need salt water, fresh water? What kind of nesting boxes do you build for them? How do you put together a habitat for all these mm -hmm. amazing animals? So it was a horrendously fast learning curve, but it was amazing. Right. And there's a lot, and you know, it's interesting with SeaWorld because now there's a lot of controversy around SeaWorld that the animals there shouldn't be there, that they were mistreated. They've always been mistreated. Um, do you think, I mean, I don't know, because I know you don't work at SeaWorld now, but what was it like when you worked there? I think, well, SeaWorld was, I think, the, the epitome of good stewardship for the animals. I mean. They really, really cared about the animals, mm -hmm. did everything they could in the animals' best interest. But there were times they were learning too, and things would, would fail at times. Right. And, um, but, you know, that uh, steadfast um, dedication to making sure we create a better habitat for the animals mm -hmm. has been uh, used over the years now, and it's become probably one of the foremost places for marine mammals healthy. I mean, killer whales don't breed in captivity if they're unhappy. And they've probably been the most successful breeder of killer whales anywhere in the world. Wow. And, um, you know, it's really tough, though, because a, a, to build the ultimate habitat for a killer whale in captivity 
would take a budget that surpasses what mm -hmm. SeaWorld would have available typically. But they've done a really, really amazing job with it. Awesome. And what happened after SeaWorld? Uh, after SeaWorld, I went back to work for my dad's film company. Okay. And he was working on some feature films at the time. So mm -hmm. I ran the camera. I shot a feature film and I did many of the commercials, the Buick commercials that used to air. Yeah. That had a hawk that flew down and landed on all the new Buicks. That was our hawk. And we did 16 years of Buick commercials. Wow. Um, and then I got spirited away by the Oregon Zoo. Mm -hmm. They were looking for somebody to run their programs. They wanted to start programs in schools and on grounds. They wanted to do a bird of prey show and other shows. Mm -hmm. So they hired me and I went to work at the Oregon Zoo and was there 12 years. And right. I was the public spokesperson there and ran all their shows and programs and that sort of thing. I bet you were a hit at the Oregon Zoo. <laughs> I, I don't know how I'd assess that, but it was a wonderful place to work and it was great people. And mm -hmm. I'm still in uh, touch with many of the people from the Oregon Zoo. Right. And even though that was 21 years ago. Yeah. So you you really didn't, weren't sure what you were going to do in life. Did you know it was going to be with animals, though, in high school? I think, uh, yeah, I had a good yeah. feeling it was going to be with animals. That was the one interest that seemed to stay with me all my life. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in artwork and doing art and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I was really interested in the film work. But my next step in the film business was to move back to L.A., and I just couldn't make that transition. No it was like, yeah. Right. And so uh, you were actually in Southern California when the Oregon Zoo called you up? No, I was living in Grants Pass. My, oh, you were my living folks, in Grants Pass. Okay. When I went away to SeaWorld, my folks moved from Los Angeles up to Grants Pass. Isn't that how it always is? <laughs> I know. They just leave you. They didn't even tell me where they were going. <laughs> didn't give you an address or anything? No. Um, just came home one day, and they were gone. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they they went to Oregon and Wildlife Images started sort of organically, more mm -hmm. by accident than by design. Dad, when he um, decided to work from Oregon as opposed to San Fernando Valley, it had become kind of a third world country, become very unlivable, too crowded. Everything you did was just a real pain. So mm -hmm. they decided, gee, I can make documentary films and live in a place like Oregon as opposed to being in mm -hmm. L.A. So he, when they moved up here to Oregon, they, of course, had eagles and hawks and that sort of thing. You need to get permits to go across state lines with federally protected wildlife. They got the permits, and then all these people wanted to come out and see the animals. You know, the sheriff's department saw the permits, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, the state police. And scratching their heads going, what's this guy doing? Yeah, exactly. Why is he coming in here with eagles and hawks? I don't get it. So they came and met my father, and he was a bigger-than-life sort of guy with a thousand stories mm -hmm. and a big booming voice. So they came and met him, and, you know, he would tell stories about his animal exploits and all this. And they finally decided, hey, next time we get an injured animal, let's just take it to that guy. And uh, that's how Wildlife Images began. Interesting. And so <laughs> he, he came here, he had animals. These eagles and hawks, they were his. Well, you can never own them. They're always uh, owned by the federal government. Okay. But they're on loan. In his protection? Yes, yes. Okay. In his custody, for sure. Because he knew what he was doing with them. Right, and he was working on a breeding program with golden eagles mm -hmm. and uh, part of the affiliation with the um, Los Angeles Zoo at the time and then SeaWorld. Okay, and so I've seen you with eagles and hawks and bears and oh my, all of that. And um, you are just amazing with these animals. Like you just speak their language. Was your dad the same way? Oh, very much. Yeah, from, he always, you know, was a, like I said, real big guy with real big hands and everything, but you can see him uh, with an injured hummingbird and these big old hands could splint the wings of a hummingbird and patch it up and put it back together and release it in the wild again. And mm -hmm. he was just amazing with that sort of thing. So I always admired that, that soft side of him and his right. kindness 
and it was a dedication to the wildlife. Right. And so when you found out where they were living in Oregon, <laughs> uh, that's when the Oregon Zoo called. Yeah. At that point, I had um, gone back um, from SeaWorld. I just moved back up to Grants Pass and was working because Dad had a big motion picture project that I was working on. What was it? It was called uh, Their Only Chance. Okay. And, um, so we filmed that, and it was filmed in Bend and in Grants Pass mm -hmm. and all over Oregon. We'd wrapped up the filming of that, working on Buick commercials and several other film projects. We had sort of films lined up all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's when the Oregon Zoo sent out a notice there looking for somebody to mm -hmm. put together programs for them. Okay. And um, so they called and asked if I'd come up and interview with it. So I did that and ended up landing it. Right. And you actually, um, Oregon Zoo, 21 years, but you left the Oregon Zoo because why? Well, my father in 1996, he had been battling cancer for about a year mm -hmm. and found out that he wasn't going to make it. It was uh, going to be the end of him. And uh, so he called me at the Oregon Zoo and asked if I'd come down and talk to him. And I had that talk with him where he said, you know, I'm going to die and I don't want this facility to die. Would you consider leaving your job? and coming down and taking wildlife images over. Mm. And it's sort of like, how do you say no to that? For sure. You know, how that, old were you? Um, let's see. I was 42, I think. Okay. Somewhere in there. And so at that point, it's like, well, gosh, I had great benefits. Mm -hmm. I had good pay and all the things that come along with having mm -hmm. a municipal job in Portland. And, of course, my son was up there. And um, so I ended up having to give it all up and moving down to take over wildlife images. I just couldn't fathom the idea of it mm -hmm. dying with my father. And um, so when I came down there, and again, he was an autocrat, so he didn't really share with me how it worked or what was involved. And I had to figure all this stuff out and including the finances, the you know, what has been done in the past, the permits, all of the different areas of responsibility. Mm -hmm. So it was a real Gordian knot to untangle and try to figure out how yeah. this thing worked. And then of course, the next thing, once I found out how it worked or what didn't work, I changed things. And that was horrible because he had a staff there that change is bad. You know, nobody likes change. No. And I came in and changed a lot of things. Right. And so I would probably hear three times a week, well, your dad wouldn't do it that way. And I had to live with that over my head a long, long sure. time, too. Did you ever get... Um you know, frustrated with your dad at this point because you, you had to leave this job that you were very successful at and then you come in and a lot of things were frustrating because you didn't know how to do them. Was there ever a moment where you're just like, oh, or were you just, it was a sacrifice for you? Yeah, there are a lot of moments, you know, my pay cut in half. I'd lost all my insurance, all my benefits. And then my son was with my ex-wife up in Portland. So I didn't get to see him. He was only sure. eight years old. So I barely, I had to drive up there on weekends to visit mm -hmm. with him. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of those er moments. What have I, what was I thinking? Mm -hmm. But, you know, when they look at it and you look at all the fuzzy critters out there that wouldn't be there without the help of wildlife images. Yeah. It sort of turns your, your thoughts around and makes you think, dang it, this is for the better good. Yeah. Cause your dad had a saying about, um, you know, wildlife and without it. Yeah, in his perspective, life was two dimensional without wildlife. Right. Wildlife added that extra dimension to his life. And I, I feel very much the same way. Mm -hmm. And I look at the decisions being made politically now and what's going on with our wildlife. And that really makes me fear for our future generations and what's going to be left. That's a, that was a question I had for you, um, you know, looking at the future, because you, you have taken wildlife images under your wing, so to speak, and really made it what it is today. Are you worried looking at the future 
that there's not going to be a Dave sitting around. Yeah, I do. We, we've been looking at, you know, a succession plan because eventually, you know, something's going to happen and I won't be able to run the place. So who would take it over? Right. Um, we, I've been talking with the Irwins, uh, Terry and Bindi and Robert, to say, hey, would you guys look after the place if something were to happen to me? But that's a lot for them to take on, too, from Australia and what, what they mm -hmm. do and all that. Mm -hmm. So I've been looking at succession plans and what would become of wildlife images. We don't have anything concrete as of yet, but that's something that goes through my mind. And it's becoming harder and harder to survive as an organization like we are right now. I know. The economy is tougher. Um, donations are down. Volunteerism is really, really down. Mm -hmm. um, permits are more difficult. We have to have one full-time person just to do permits anymore at the place. So the bureaucracy gets yeah. heavier all the time. Um, the expense and the costs of maintaining the animals gets greater because our level of care has increased considerably. And that comes with another component, which is the expense of doing that. Yeah. And yet, yet, we people get so frustrated when there is a you know a wild animal that's been injured and we're like hey wildlife images can't you just take care of this we get frustrated because we depend on you to take care of it but it it's a circle we all have to kind of help each other out it is and you know a lot of people don't understand when you know gosh can you drop everything and drive to medford to pick up an injured dove or whatever for, for merlin yeah yeah we don't have the resources to do that and people get mad at us you know we offer know. all of our care for wildlife for free and we absorb all the costs and so you know we're barely keeping our head above water now mm -hmm. with the expense of what we're doing right now so i worry about the future and how we'd have to change our business plan to make sure that it is profitable so mm -hmm. we can have a secure future for the place and i worry about the future because you're worried about the future like so just just talking with you and you've educated me on all of these animals and because i know what i know about them i'm worried for the future it mm -hmm. worries me it doesn't keep me up at night but it does worry <laughs> it does worry me well yeah it's, it seems like you know what happens to the 100 or so animals permanently in our care yeah if something were to happen to wildlife images and then the future of the thousand plus animals we receive every year and treat and mm -hmm. you know try to return back to the wild all of that's a, a big unknown and how do you deal with that yeah well and for those who don't know that's the main goal for wildlife images is not to take these animals in and and you know have fun with them every day it's essentially to if there's an injured animal you guys treat it rehabilitate it and then it's back out in the wild you don't want to see that animal again absolutely so the whole idea is to get animals back out in the wild mm -hmm. as quickly and as efficiently as we possibly can. Okay, we're, we're gonna stop talking about things that are so sad. Um, <laughs> but you've had some amazing success stories at Wildlife Images. We have. As far as, I mean, if anyone has ever seen the birds released back into the wild, it is the most inspirational thing I've ever seen. It's just so touching. It is, it's amazing. You know, there's sort of those cold chills you get when you take them out and you release them. Yeah. I don't know how you'd explain that to somebody, you know, it's like, euphoria you take this animal out then you know what kind of shape it came into to you in and then mm -hmm. you could turn that around and release it back out in the wild and you know most of that's due to the amazing people that we have working in our clinic we have a dedicated staff that you know gets uh not proper compensation for all the work they do yeah um but they just work miracles and unfortunately that's the part of the place we can't show to the public you know the public's not allowed to see the animals in rehab because of course the thought is you'd get them too habituated to mm -hmm. humans and they wouldn't be good release candidates for sure so keep the humans away from the recovering mm -hmm. uh, patients 
and get them back out in the wild. But I wish more people could be there for the releases because it is such a positive thing. It's such an amazing feeling to see those animals go out in the wild. Yeah, you need like a tip bucket out there. So if you're feeling good, <laughs> people can just throw some cash in there. Absolutely. Right? Gosh, that'd be, be good, wonderful. Be a good fundraiser yeah. for wildlife images. What's one of the stories, whether it's a bird or any sort of animal that's come in and you just thought, I just don't know if, if this animal is going to be able to be rehabilitated, and then it was. Is there, I'm sure there's a ton of them. Yeah, there's a, gosh, you know, every year there's a number of animals that come in that are just so battered up. I remember we got a, a great horned owl once that came into us. It was the weirdest story. Some people were moving, and they were coming north and mm -hmm. through the Grants Pass area. And they pulled into our driveway, and they had two mattresses tied on top of their car and pulled in and said, we hit a, an owl can you help us with this owl? And so, sure, we go out to the car, and they said it's in between the mattresses. Oh, Apparently, no. it flew over the car and got jammed in between their mattresses on top of the car and had driven another 50 or 60 miles mm -hmm. with it that way. And um, so, you know, we were able to pry it out of the mattresses <laughs> and get him up. But he wasn't too badly injured. So fortunately, it was a soft uh, well, landing those in mattresses, there. mattresses, <laughs> yeah. And uh, took him out and, you know, let him recover. And he came out and did really well. Um, some of the most amazing stories are maybe even the failures are like Phoenix, my golden eagle. Had him for almost 40 years now. And he came into us as a little ball of fuzz that was found in the middle of a logging road by somebody driving a logging truck. They came around a corner and had a whole load of logs. And for some, some reason, he saw this ball of fuzz and stopped the truck, no got way. out, picked up this little booger, put him in this hard hat in the seat of his truck, and then continued on his route. Then I got a call from Brookings that afternoon saying, hey, I found a little eagle over there. Can you uh, come over and pick it up? And I can't tell you how many times you drop everything and you go running over to pick up an eagle and find out it's a dove or a pigeon or, you know, because baby birds are hard to identify. Sure. And so you do all this. And for some reason, I just thought, well, driving over to Bookings would be a great trip today anyway. So <laughs> I went over there and knocked on the guy's house uh, door and he came over with his hard hat with the eagle in it. And by Jove, it was a baby golden eagle. And Aww. he was so weakened, he couldn't even lift his head up to look over the edge of the helmet. Aww. So, um, you know, I ran to the grocery store with him and uh, got some meat and started feeding him on the way back. And uh, he took the food, fortunately, but he was so out of it. And he is one of these birds that would rally and crash and rally and crash. And I bet it was three months before he finally got uh, stable uh, health, you know, and he was okay. But of course, by that time, you know, he had been kind of habituated to humans, not a good candidate for release. Mm -hmm. We introduced him to live prey and he just made friends with it. <laughs> um, so, and that was back in, uh, you know, the 80s when, uh, or 70s actually, when he came in. And uh, so we were able to keep him as an educational ambassador because he's so beautifully suited for that. You know, yeah. he's adjusted people. He traveled beautifully. Um, so uh, recently, he has gotten to an age now where he started forming cataracts. And so an eagle with bad eyesight is certainly not a good prospect for survival. Exactly. So uh, Dr. Bliss down here in Medford, she works on eyes exclusively. And, and she's a dream boat. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah, she's yeah. a wonderful lady. So uh, she agreed to take him on as a patient and help us get a lens donated because there's not a lot of companies out there that build artificial eagle lenses. Really? <laughs> you can't believe it. The market's got to be huge for that. But, <laughs> um, so anyway, she got a hold of her uh, suppliers and they agreed to produce a lens and it was uh, normally like $1,500 lens. 
and she did the surgery, and um, it's the first time it's been done to a golden eagle, wow. and opened his eye up, and I got to be there for the surgery. It's fascinating to watch. And they, you know, uh, basically take all the old cataract material out of there, mm -hmm. and then slide a new lens in, and then suture the eye together, which mm -hmm. is just an amazing process. But unfortunately, the eye rejected the lens. We don't know exactly what was going on, so he had to go back in for another surgery to remove that lens, put the eye back together again. But he can see great. He just can't focus real close. He's got good distance right. uh, vision with that eye. But now his other eye is starting to form a cataract, so we're looking at, well, do we go again for the eye? Sure. Whatever. He also has your heart. Oh, gosh, yeah. I just love that little guy so much. He's just one of those one-in-a-million eagles that's got the ultimate personality and adaptive and bright and... And he, loves you. Yeah, well, we have a very close relationship. He's just a super great bird. And you have you have relationships with a lot of the animals there. Um, the two bears that I met. Uh-huh. Cody and Yak. Cody and Yak. Absolutely love you. Yeah, I think the world of them too. <laughs> I know you do. And it's funny because if you're listening to this right now, Dave is much like your dad, I, I would assume, larger than life. You have this big, booming, deep voice. But when he gets around these animals, it's like boo-boo, shmoo-moo, woo-woo, <laughs> like baby talk big time. Um, Nubs? Oh, Nubs, yeah. He's another special critter. Tell me, sure. the, tell me the story quickly about how Nubs came to you guys. Eastern Oregon, alongside of a highway, people were driving by, and they saw a dead badger and noticed something crawling around on the badger. So they stopped to take a look. And there were three babies, babies stuck mm. to the baby, the mom. Right. And they were just about the size of, you know, um, probably a gerbil at the time, little bitty guys. So they picked them up, took them to the High Desert Museum in Bend. And the High Desert Museum called us, said, we really don't know much about raising badgers. Would you take these guys on and raise them for us? And so, of course, we wouldn't say no to that. So they came to us, all three of them. And part of our deal was, well, we'll get to keep the one of the badgers mm -hmm. for an educational ambassador. So we raised these little guys and um, one of them became very, very special to us, Nubs. He was sort of the smallest runt of the litter, but he just had that personality where he just loved being around us. Yeah. And um, we were able to get permission to keep them as educational ambassadors very early on. So there wasn't any reconditioning to go out in the wild. These guys were set to be in captivity and they're considered a pest by most of the uh, laws and game. Um, so. We took the nubs on, and he has just grown better and better every day. So he's just a wonderful guy. He's one of the badgers. I can go in there, and he's like playing with a small dog to me. Yeah. He just really, really relates to us, and he's wonderful. Do you see, because I know a lot of these animals have other staff there that deal with them. Do you ever see their ears perk up, or they perk up when you when you come around? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, There's you know they recognize your voice, your body yeah. movement, and, you know, the only animal I think I really worked with a lot that really you couldn't see the body uh, language change much on was killer whales because I, I trained killer whales for eight years and um, they're, they're very non-expressive you know their eyes don't change a lot their body mm -hmm. language doesn't really change really um, so that was always hard to not be able to read the animal that you're mm -hmm. going to be dealing with the life you have lived, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting. Well, I just feel like wild animals, they're so, I don't want to call them, they're so far away from us. You know, we're not supposed to feed the deer. We're not supposed to pet a mountain lion because it could eat you. And here you are right up next to these animals and you're in their face and you're touching them and treating them. And I just feel like it's, you're kind of like that special person that's been chosen to interact with these animals to help them because the rest of us can't. 
Yeah, that's, uh, I wish more people could because that can change lives. You know, the ability to interact with a wild animal can change so much of the way mm -hmm. you think about the animals and what you think about the environment and all that. And it's so darn hard to do that anymore because there's so many laws I know. keeping us from being able to let people interact. Even when mm -hmm. there's an animal, it's completely safe. You know, the laws yeah. are so strict, we can't do that. Well, look at the joy that dogs and cats bring us. Absolutely. So I can only imagine. Well, when I visited you at Wildlife Images for the story that we did, the road trip and we did a, probably a few months ago, uh -huh. it, I mean, I just left there feeling so good and just had all of these stories and was telling my husband, we gotta go back. We gotta go back and hang out with the bears. Absolutely. Well, you know, and it is a, a wonderful event when you do get somebody in that has the ability to have that experience and mm -hmm. all that. And the hysteria now with, you know, everybody is always so scared of the cougars and the wolves coming back into Oregon. You know, in all the history of Oregon, nobody's ever been killed by a cougar in the wild. So it's sort of like in every year, how many people are killed by bee stings? Or, mm -hmm. you know, the number one animal in Oregon that kills people is horses. And, but you don't see that sensationalized or made into a big giant story. Right. You know, just the cougars are vilified. And that's just a shame. I wish we could think of these animals in a different way. I agree, I'm with you. If your dad could see the work you're doing right now, what do you think he'd say? What were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, he did some things so much differently. One of the things that he often believed in is if it looks too nice, people don't think you need money. And so when I took the place over, it kind of had that um, feel of Sanford and Sons. I mean, just it just a lot of, <laughs> you know, it just, it kind of looked um, tattered around the edges. Right. And I came from a place like SeaWorld and the zoo where everything looks finished and is really, really a nice. A park, yeah, where people feel like they're proud of it. Mm -hmm. And so I've changed a lot of that. And that may be one of the reasons maybe we're having a harder time raising money now. Maybe people think you just have too darn much money because it looks better. But, we, but we're here to tell them you don't. Yes, indeed. We are, it's, um, unfortunately, the sad truth is we're a long ways from being solvent. You know, we yeah. still run about $300,000 in the red every year. So if it wasn't for the kindness of people planning us in their estates and that sort of thing, wildlife images wouldn't be there today. But mm. that's probably not going to hold up for a long time. So we're going to be doing a lot more to encourage membership and mm -hmm. people to participate in our fundraisers. Like July 14th, we have a big fundraiser. Right. And we want to get people to come out and help us keep the place going. Okay. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about some other things <laughs> other than animals. Uh, you have a big love of cars. Oh, yeah, I kind of do, yeah. Specifically, <laughs> what kind of car? Oh, I, I like Corvettes. I've always mm -hmm. been one of my favorites. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I've always, uh, when my mother um, died a few years back, she said, here's some money now for you and your sister. You guys pay off your debts and your bills and all that sort of thing. And here's a little extra if you want to do something fun. So I bought a Corvette with mine. And, What'd you and buy? I bought a Grand Sport uh, 2010. I bought a used one, so it's cheaper. Okay. And uh, so I, I love it. It's wonderful. You still have it? I still have it, yep. And that's your only Corvette? That's my only Corvette. Okay. But <laughs> you like other... I don't have the budget for others. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you, I mean, you just love Corvettes, period. Oh, yeah. yeah what I is it about the car? It. I don't know. I grew up around it. My dad, when he was in Los Angeles, was a writer for magazines and all sorts of things. And I remember one time when he came home with a brand new Maserati, and he was doing an article for a thing called West Magazine. And for a week or two, they would give him all these new cars to have. And Ooh. so for a week, I was too young to drive, of course, at the time. He brought home a Maserati, and he brought home a, a new Mustang GTCS, and he brought home a 
Cougar that was specially built for the race circuit. Yeah. And then he brought home a bright yellow 69, 68 Corvette. Mm-hmm. And it was the big block and had all the stuff. And I just fell in love with him at that time. You know, That was the car. I think that was the car, yep. And I, I really thought, gee, that was really, someday I want to get one. Okay. Uh, we're going to move on to the final three, but you you brought some stuff with you. So you did some show. You yeah, some you were talking talk. about history and all that, so I brought yeah. some old photos of some of the things that we've well, let's done see, Let's see a few things. Um, number one, this is a, uh, a bag of goodies that the, the Irwins just sent us for our fundraiser coming up awesome. on July 14th. So it's... Um, there's a whole lot more than this. There's videos and calendars and all sorts of sign things signed by Bendy and Robert. Is this like a, a swag bag? Yeah, for it people is, totally. to take home. Yeah, so if they bid on this, they get to have this bag full mm, of nice. wonderful things from the Irwins. They're also sending us two big uh, photographs that Robert's become a very accomplished photographer. So they're photos based on their wildlife and all that. Which I, uh, we went and spent two weeks with the Irwins last summer at their place down mm-hmm. in Australia, and they're awesome people, so they've been big supporters. And So anyway, there's that opportunity. Okay. Um, there's some of the old photos that uh, from my old days at doing the killer whales. That's you? That's me, yep. Um, uh, w- what outfit were you wearing there, <laughs> Mr. Siddons? It was uh, Admiral John Paul Jones. Oh. That was the theme of the show was uh, the bicentennial at the time. And so um, that's why the 76 was back there. So Got it. That was one of the parts in the show. So I was doing the killer whale shows there. I like it. And uh, right the right, same era, that's me doing the dolphins. We were the first people to train what's called the Roman ride with three animals and two people on them. And they'd run, run around the whole uh, perimeter of the stadium we were in and then dive under the stage and you'd be able to hopefully step off on stage. Who's this with you? Oh, Rich Phillips. He is one of the other trainers that was with me at the time. You're literally riding a dolphin. Yeah, yeah. That's what we did that every day. Well, six times a day during the shows. So, yeah. No big deal. (laughs) Just just riding a dolphin. Again, the life you have led, sir. Okay. That was, uh, I got to drive a Formula One car. Some friends uh, from Europe brought them over to the United States and got to go do a Formula One drive, which was pretty much a an e-ticket, the coolest kind of cars in the world. So I got to do that like three different times. How fast do you go? You know, you can't look at the speedometer because you go off the road. It's just, they are, they are so fast. Um, they've, they're capable of doing 240 miles an hour or so. Um, I don't think I did 200 miles an hour. I never looked down, uh, but you went real fast. I would be like Ricky Bobby in that, going like 10 miles an hour, afraid that I would crash. And uh, some of these things were just an old album with things that... Uh, we yeah. did when we did like the John Denver specials. Yeah. And uh, then I was going to say, years. your dad, um, I mean, he's, you guys have rubbed elbows with some pretty spectacular people because of we his did. connection to wildlife. Yeah. And his film jobs, we did like John Denver. This is who's, when we were working on a John Denver special, it was called the Rocky Mountain Reunion. We did that, flew the Eagles for him in Aspen, Colorado. And that was in How the West Was Won. This was a series done in Bend and I was an extra in that walking a bear through a camp. So that's where I got my SAG card back then. Nice. Um, doing the Buick commercials. Um, off in there. Yeah. So some of our exploits with the animals then there was, I worked on a, a TV show called Those Amazing Animals mm-hmm. in LA and I think the picture. That's you, there. right? That's me with the cougar. And that's your dad? That's my dad okay. with Bobby Kennedy Jr. and an eagle. We were doing a, um, uh, a special, a TV special with Bobby Kennedy, and wonderful guy to work with, just amazing guy. And uh, this is Mountain Family Robinson we did in Crested Butte, Colorado, flying eagles in the wind machine and mm-hmm. doing all kinds of filming with that. 
So when Hollywood um, needed wild animals, they called your dad. Yeah, and our specialty was eagles, typically. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of other people could do, you know, mountain lions and bobcats and all that stuff. And um, mm -hmm. so we did, our specialty was eagles. And so we did, did that sort of thing, typically. And we'd get called all over the place to do eagle work. And that's one of the bears that I had to raise. Digger. Winnie was her name. Winnie, yep. Yeah, was that particular bear? Baby yeah. bear. That was a baby bear right there, right? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, so okay. a youngster. And back at the time, you know, we've released 60-some bears back to the wild. And uh, once in a while, you'd get these that would come in that were just habitually imprinted and you couldn't release. Mm -hmm. And that was one of them. We ended up keeping them for an educational ambassador. Fascinating. And you know, all that. So, so fascinating. Yeah, so we got to work with, what, Priscilla Presley and Burgess Meredith and all those sort of people, too. And, um, oh, yeah, she came to... Oh, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart came to Wildlife Images. Um and, um, <laughs> That's all you're gonna say about yeah, that. Yeah, no, That's she came. She came did a special there. Um, she wasn't particularly enamored of animals, though. She was hmm, a, okay. a little bit difficult to be around at times with the critters. Um, Very cool. And Bur cool. Burgess Meredith was, or not Burgess Meredith was with the, those amazing animals when I worked with him as well. And um, so we, um, yeah, there's Jim Stafford and Priscilla Presley and some of the people that we worked with on those shows. So. Amazing, amazing. All right. Well, we could talk about this forever, and maybe you'll come back and we'll talk more about Anytime this. Anytime kind of, Okay, you want, I love it. So let's move on to our final three now. Uh, the best advice you've ever been given? Um, don't go. Don't run wildlife images in debt. You know, keep uh, keep it out of debt. And I think that was one of the best things that my dad worked with that idea, and I worked with that tirelessly to make sure that we don't go into debt for anything because that's the undoing of most good organizations. They get too far in debt. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it too is uh, live your values was another thing that my father, mm -hmm. you know, I've had opportunities to do things that would make me probably do pretty well financially and all that. Uh, but I always tended to go to where my heart was and follow that and mm -hmm. taking care of the animals was a higher priority for me. So amazing. living in poverty and having cool animals was way better. <laughs> oh, Dave, that's amazing. Um, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, uh, what would bring you back here? What would you miss the most? I don't know. The environment in Southern Oregon is just hard to beat. I mean, wonderful people, the environment with the rivers, and it's somewhat unspoiled. And that's one of the things that scares me now is because there's so many people they're out there promoting, move to Oregon, move to Oregon. Well, I saw that growing up in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. They used to be some of the most gorgeous country in the world. Mm -hmm. And now it's a trash heap. It's just awful. And I hate to see that with Oregon. I'd like to have people, you know, I think our former governor, you know, back many generations ago had that idea, Tom McCall was, come to Oregon and visit, but uh, then go away. <laughs> you know, I think keeping some areas pristine and gorgeous for the wildlife yeah. should be done. You yeah. Know? It's a common theme in this podcast. We love Oregon, but don't move here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's one of those things that, you know, you have good friends that come visit you and they think, gosh, I think I'll come visit and live there. Yeah. And it's just, no. it's going to happen. But yeah, yeah, yeah don't yeah. bring too many. <laughs> don't bring too many of your relatives or friends here. Uh, and final question, if you were given a last meal and a last drink, what would that be? Oh, probably abalone. I haven't had abalone very much. I remember when I was at SeaWorld, we'd be able to get abalone and things and awesome food, but it's gotten super expensive and overfished yeah. and they've wiped that out. And the last drink, um, oh, Arnold Palmer, maybe. Arnold Palmer. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. I think you're the second one to say an Arnold Palmer. The first to say abalone, though. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm trying to think of something I never really get to have anymore, that I remember I like growing it. up having that. 
So I used to, you know, I've been an avid diver all my life, and I remember diving and getting abalone and things. And yeah, that'd be something to have. All right. Will you come back and we can talk more about wildlife images? Anytime you want. Because the work you guys do there is truly amazing. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play now. And you can check out the video portion of this podcast at ktvl.com. Just click on Features and then Off Script. Dave Sidden, once again, I think you're amazing. And Southern Oregon is lucky to have you. Well, thank you. I'm lucky to be here.